0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest. With me today in studio is best selling author Walter Solner. He is the author of a multi part series, the latest book of which is called An Incident in Africa. Walter, let's pick up the conversation.
2: And trained. I know my mother was trained as a nurse. In this, in these teenage girls are trained to, to you know, uh, with the whole idea that a war is coming. You know, we're going to need medical people. To train all these these young women beforehand, so they can immediately take care of the soldiers that are coming back wounded and all that kind of
1: stuff. You know, fascinating. You know, they always say history is uh, you know 2020, but to see the ways in which the buildup was taking place. In some arenas subtly, in other ways not so subtly, Mm -hmm. but the slow march toward the eventual events of 1938 and then into 1939, uh, clearly the stage was being set. Well before any, any notion yeah, of, oh, there was an incursion by Polish soldiers on a German radio station yeah. at the front and, you know, the eventual excuse that was cooked up. And then prior to that, all this talk about the uh, recapturing the Sudetenland and the poor Germans that were suffering at the hands of the Czechs and so forth and so on. I mean, yeah. it made for good headlines. Mm-hmm. But the irony is the handwriting was on the wall well before that. Yeah.
2: And the tragedy is for England and the United States and France, actually all of us, were in this isolationist mode. The First World War was so devastating because there was so much loss of life, you know, by the by the British and by the French particularly. And, of course, we lost troops in the First World War II. And so there was this isolationist attitude. We don't want to get in any more, you know, European wars. We, we don't, you know. Avoid we,
1: foreign no, entanglements.
2: Exactly. And, of course, what happened is, Germany was under Hitler was building up this big military machine, and we we're sitting over saying, well, we don't want any defense budget, you know, any defense budget." We and the British were the same way, you know. They don't want any. Uh, they didn't spend any money on their defenses, and and the French had this kind of almost defeatist attitude about uh, about war, especially when it comes to Germany.
1: Well, and the French had, they probably felt pretty secure with the construction of the Maginot Line that there was no way German, Germany was going to try that again.
2: Yeah, except uh, the French weren't that smart because what they did, <laughs> they built the Maginot Line, but they didn't build it along the border with Belgium. So when Germany did invade finally in uh, yeah, the first part of World War II, They didn't try to cross this amazing Maginot line, which is a highly defensive wall between France and Germany. The Germans said, well, we're not going to try to get across that wall of defenses. We're going to go around. We'll invade through Belgium, and because there's no defensive wall between Belgium and France, we'll just... We'll just go around the northern end of it. Why, why
1: knock a hole through the wall when somebody's left the door wide yeah, open? Yeah, it's like
2: it's like having a dike and you know to keep out the ocean, but you know one end of it isn't isn't completed, so the water all pours in one one end, right? And that's exactly
1: what happened. And they certainly also were not paying very close attention in terms of the military buildup. When you see the response eventually by the Polish Army to the incursion into Poland in in September of thirty-nine and then later on into into France in nineteen forty, most of these people that were trying to defend their countries were fighting a World War One style war, meaning they sent literally sent out the cavalry, and yet in comes Germany that was prepared to fight in an all-mechanized war. Other than maybe horses for show, Germany probably didn't have a single uh, mounted cavalry, but yet that's the response that they were met with. So is there any surprise that they were able to roll right through uh, almost every territory they went to until they eventually ran across the one thing that they hadn't counted on, and that was the Russian winners?
2: True, But what was really ironic, just before the war, Hitler, who had denounced Russia for so long, before the war, formed an alliance with with Russia, with communist Russia, which there was like their evil enemy, but they still had this alliance with them. And so at the very beginning of the war, uh, when Germany invaded Poland, Russia invaded Poland from the other side. The four Poles, you know, weren't just fighting a fighting against the Germans they were also fighting against their back which was uh, the Russians were invading from one side and but, but the, and was the that, Germans from the other side was that
1: not the Walter a a a temporary distraction a hey look over here a card played by Hitler and I asked that question because you delineated earlier uh, about the incursion in World War 1 mm-hmm. and it would seem to me that you know payback must have been part of the agenda there insofar as the the German, I mean, aside from Hitler's claims of of Liebenstrom heading toward the east, uh, was not part of this potentially retaliatory for uh, uh, Russia's treatment of Germany during the First World War?
2: Well, you know, I think that um, I'm not sure what the motivation was. Uh, There are a lot of opinions about uh, the motivation of Germany uh, having this, alliance with with Russia. I think that they probably did it as a temporary thing because it was easier to knock out Poland and for Germany to uh, to progress uh, with the idea that they're eventually going to go to war against Russia anyway. Uh, but it made it easier for Germany to, because it, it took uh, part of the Polish army away from fighting Germany. They had to fight Russia. Right? Anyway, that's one of the sideshows of, 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 the, of the, uh, the First World War, uh, the Second World War. So um, all of this is going to be dealt with, I suspect, in, uh, in book five of my, of my series. It's really funny. You know, I, I thought when I first started writing that I was going to uh, – this is going to be one book. I thought, well, I'm going to write this one book, you know, because I had written all these vignettes about all these various issues, little stories – And, boy, I got into writing the, you know, the first book, there's no way (laughs) this can be one book. History is like an onion, it's just layer after layer layer after layer. And it's so fascinating, you know, and I think one of the um, disturbing things about our contemporary society is that I'm not sure how much emphasis is put on the teaching of history. I got this feeling that uh, a lot of our population in the United States today are really illiterate when it comes to, um, or simply not very knowledgeable. About the history of the world. Well, and, and if you find
1: young people who can't tell you who the current vice president is, there is a great likelihood that they have no idea who led America through the Second World War or who served as the predecessor to Adolf Hitler in Germany in the, the early 1930s.
2: Yeah, or or that um, <clears throat> the Vietnam War, where we lost fifty eight thousand troops, you know, was predicated on the. Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which was a completely fabricated story that got us into the Vietnam War and that, and that the Iraqi war uh, was predicated upon uh, Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction when, in fact, he had none. Well, even and
1: Vietnam. Wasn't Vietnam largely not a war between the North and the South, but rather a war between the United States and China and Russia?
2: Well, yeah, it was. It was this idea that somehow we were supposed to stop communism from spreading. That there was the whole idea that oh, communism was so bad, we should we should stop it. Well, you know, Vietnam now is a communist country. The premier of of the communist Vietnam is has visited Washington, shook hands with the president, and we've got these you know uh, diplomatic relations and america's culture.
1: number one America's number one trading partner is communist china
2: <laughs> <laughs> communist china, yeah, so so you know, oh okay, so you know, maybe we should just let people you know let people be what they want to be, i mean if you know should democracy be for everybody well, I don't know, I mean it works great for us, but does it work great for uh I mean, would a good would, – would democracy work in uh, Afghanistan where you have these tribal societies that have no, no experience with it? You know, the uniqueness of America and America's democracy is that it's predicated upon the British parliamentary system that was in place before America, uh, when, when America was simply a, a series of colonies. Um, uh, so there was already this um, – a sense of a democracy in terms of the the British Parliament, where the British Parliament had a you know a lot to say about how the country was run, and so uh, when finally you know George Washington and all those guys uh, formed uh, you know the United States, they had a template to to in a sense uh, adapt, um, partially anyway in terms of setting up our 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 form of government here that does not apply to most of the rest of the world i mean the afghanistans or i'm just taking them as an example you know they don't have any any previous experience with the quote the mother country or something like that that, that would show them how to have a democracy and and uh, china had warlords <clears throat> you know or an empress you know or something like that for a long time. Yeah, Sunnyet said came along and, and did set up a democratic government uh, for a short period of time. But
1: Walter, let me interrupt for just a brief moment. If you've just tuned in, we're visiting today with author Walter Solner. He is the author of a trilogy, the latest book of which is called An Incident in Africa. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest with me today in studio, best-selling author Walter Solner. If you compare and contrast from different uh, different nations, different forms of government, that the the one thing that we kind of left out of the equation, for example, as we look at the attempt uh, 10 years ago to, to quote-unquote, democratize Afghanistan and that is you can't do any of this in a vacuum going back to that that onion the layers that it's the intersection of a nation's history and its culture and philosophy that drives the decisions that it makes as a group of people or or as a society and as much as that might influence one nation to be attracted toward democracy might very well repel another and it's interesting because that also i think walter brings us back full circle to the start of our conversation and that is that your your motivation in writing these books beyond that sense of just wanting to to, to tell a story and see your words pour out on paper is that all three of the current books in the series and eventually the the, the next two um really are at that intersection of culture and history and philosophy
2: and and um I think uh, one of my motivations in this—well, uh, there were several motivations—but one of the major ones I think was to maybe teach some history, at least my perspective on the uh, on the history of this 20th century, and do it in a and deliver the quote history lessons because I'm a professor. Okay, <laughs> you never get. You know, you can take the professor out of the university, but you can't take <laughs> you know, however yeah. that expression goes. Anyway, uh, you know, to to um, to present history, uh, teach history in in a kind of an exciting way. I mean, there's romance, there's drama, there's action, there's all kinds of things. Going the mystery, on in the
1: intrigue, the irony. Yeah, and
2: <laughs> in, in the in the books, and and and, uh, but at the same time. Uh, uh, whoever reads the books, you know, will will get a, a history lesson, and a, which I think is really very important.
1: Well, and I think also too, folks being drawn into the characters and seeing how the the characters' lives play out against the backdrop of these events going on, mm-hmm. and how it influences their decisions and the outcome of their own personal history. I mean, there's there's world history, and then there's our own history or our own story that's being written day by day. And I think what's fascinating about what you've done with this series is taken historical events, added characters, allowed them to interact with these historical events, and then watch as their own stories unfold. And hopefully the reader, beyond being entertained and learning something about history will also walk away with a sense of seeing through the character's eyes and hopefully learning something based on their choices, be they the right choice or the wrong choice, and how that kind of information can not only ultimately entertain us, but also hopefully inform us as we live out our own stories.
2: Absolutely, and um, the reader will have an opportunity, if, in fact they read the whole series Starting at the beginning, where these two my two young protagonists are 18 years old in China, and following them through uh, through the Weimar through uh, the Billy Pock period of the uh, before World War One, and then through World War One, and then through the Weimar Republic of Germany, and you know between World War One, World War Two, and then into World War Two, um, these same characters growing, maturing. You know, becoming parents, becoming grandparents. I mean, following these characters and how this history has shaped their lives, influenced their lives, and they interacted with all of this dramatic history. Um, uh, you know, this fifty-year period, period, and so uh, the story isn't isn't finished. Uh, it's ongoing, and uh, I'm looking forward to um, to finishing book four and have it published by the end of uh, 2018. That's book, book four. And then in, in uh, 2019 writing the, the fifth and final book. <clears throat> now, in the back of my mind <laughs> I'm thinking... I sure hope it only takes five books to do this series. Yeah, and I, I was just going to ask you. you,
1: you started by telling us that they began as a series of vignettes that you wrote on the train traveling through Germany and thought maybe there was a book in you. Now you found out, well, there's at least three in the process of four, hopefully five, but potentially more.
2: Yeah, and the funny thing is, I have this other story in mind which is a, it's, it's an American story and I'd love to tell it and uh, I can give you just a vignette of what it is. This is this is completely un- unrelated to um, my first, uh, my, uh, this whole series of books I'm writing but it would be a, a one story standalone and it's about a very interesting bit of American history uh, and this has to do with in about 1912, the U.S. Army wanted to see if they could introduce bicycles, bicycles, to replace part of the cavalry. Okay, because right now, right now, uh, at that time, 1912, they had, the U.S. Army, you know, they had cavalry. They had horse, everybody was on a horse, right? Except for the foot soldiers. And And so, they, proposed a exercise a challenge and what did it consisted of if it's going from Boise, Montana to St. Louis Missouri taking a um a, not a platoon but a um well a smaller unit not a platoon um a company of a company of soldiers by bicycle cross the rocky mountains all the way to st louis now this is a true story they actually did this these guys they had their rifles they had their their military packs in their back and they were on bicycles and you can imagine today once in a while you get a flat tire back then (laughs) you'd get about five miles and you'd have a flat tire okay you can imagine these guys. There was actually photographs. I've actually got uh, some sources of photographs showing these guys pushing their bicycles up these rocky slopes of the Rocky Mountains and then going through the Great Plains on their bicycles, no roads, going through the grass on the Great Plains and down dirt roads and stuff like that, I, I all have the way
1: the, to St. Louis. I have the image of a soldier turned out in, in, in full um, military camouflage with pack on the they back didn't have and rifle, in those days. <laughs> and, 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 and ringing the bell on the handlebars <laughs> of <or> bicycle. <some, laughs> it's, anyway. it's a great picture. Oh it my really God! Is. So,
2: so this is. But I just have to just to wrap this up. Um, so, what was interesting is they would go through these towns, and they would be welcomed and celebrated, and and the whole town would turn out when these guys were coming through town and all that. And what was interesting? It was it was a black group of these were Buffalo soldiers left over from the Great Plains fighting and stuff like that. Uh, so these were black troops led by a white officer. So that that brings a whole other dimension mm-hmm. to it, also, right? Now, eventually, <clears throat> I don't think the U.S. Army adopted bicycles. However. If you look at um, the French army had had bicycles the British had bicycle brigades and stuff. But of course they were in Europe that had all these roads, right? I mean those you know, they had they were, they were riding on roads that were built by the Romans, you know, and the, and all these village streets and all that stuff. You know, when you're trying to cross the Rocky Mountains on a bicycle, I mean, can yeah, you imagine then, that? that?
1: line item in the military budget of $10 billion <laughs> for bicycles, you know. You somebody go. had to stop and say, is this really a good idea?
2: Well, anyway, I just want to say that, that that that's in the back of my mind. But I, first I want to get through my whole series of books here, and and then maybe I'll write that and maybe I won't. But I think it's a great theme it would make a great movie, I think. Well, I,
1: I have a suspicion, Walter, uh, that for many listeners today, while this might be the first time they're hearing of a Walter Solner, this will definitely not be the last. Let me well, mention again that, that uh, this series of three books are currently out, one in the works, and the, the fifth one due to be released uh, next year. And you can get more information by simply going online and ordering the books through Amazon.com. Uh, give us the names, the titles of the first three books. <clears throat>
2: Kalvarian uh, Calvar- Hoff uh, The Perilous Journey is book one uh, book two is The Storm That Shook the World and book three is An Incident in Africa uh, those are the three books and you can go to uh, com, my website if you'd like to do that get more information or go directly to Amazon uh, and of course they're available on Kindle too and I am just looking now into having um, possibly the, uh, the audio books, uh, the books made into audio, which is actually uh, you know there's a whole contingent of listeners just like listening to the radio, who a uh, group of people who love quote reading but don't actually want to read; they want to listen. And so that's um, a very growing market for writers who may write the book, but also have it in another format.
1: Well, and in the Bay Area, where commutes can run 45 minutes to an hour in each direction, um, what a wonderful way to redeem some of that time. Absolutely. Again, the series uh, published by Gossip Park Books, and you can order it online by going to Amazon.com. Just uh, simply look for Walter Osorna, S-O-E-L-L-N-E-R. You'll find the first three installments and uh, more to come. Walter, we appreciate the time.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You are driving home, no doubt. Lots of hustle and bustle and traffic all around you at the moment. But I want you to kind of focus for a moment, if you would. Picture your most idyllic spot to escape to. Maybe it's a small mountain cabin overlooking sun-kissed lake by summer and snow-capped mountains by winter. Perhaps a spanish style home with red tile roof looking out onto the Great Plains with wild horses roaming about. Yours could be a waterfront view from a private beach surrounded by seagulls, waterfowl of every description, and the occasional passing fisherman. Now, imagine for a moment such a spot, not just a getaway or a dream spot that you would hope to someday visit, if not read about, but rather a place you call home. Susan Walters calls such a place home, and we find out why inside the pages of a new book called At the End of the Ferry. Susan, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: I must tell you, for most readers, no doubt, they look at your book and they begin to get drawn into the pages of your day-to-day life experience and must think, you know, this is either the fulfillment of a retirement dream or a lottery (laughs) winning.
3: (laughs) Oh, it's just pretty special.
1: You have spent your life as a professional writer. You were in the real estate world for quite a number of years. You've been in the hustle and bustle of of big towns with big names that we would all recognize. And now you've been able to kind of unplug from all of that and in many respects, not just see nature for what it is, but I think at the same token, see God for who he is in all of this. And I have to wonder, as as your story tonight unfolds, first and foremost, people think about the quietness of the sea and watching the sunset and hearing the sound of the seagulls as they fly in and out and, and whatnot and have to wonder, well, wait a minute now. How in the madness of this day and age that we live in do you unplug from the clutter of the internet, cell phone, text messages, and (laughs) 55-inch widescreen TVs? Is this really possible?
3: It really is possible. And it's truly a dream come true for me. And I was a big city girl for a long time. And we live in a small town. We still do big city things and have responsibilities. And It's a smell, a noise, a sound, it's really touching nature, and like you said, getting in touch and being still and being closer to to the Lord, it's very, very special.
1: Your book, At the End of the Ferry, really walks us through day-to-day life in your home that has, in so many respects, almost served as a magnifying glass to the wonder of the simplicity of life. What's that experience (laughs) like on a day-to-day basis?
3: It is truly a joy. You know, when you have not for 17 years, 17 summers, I had not gone barefoot. You know, I mean, you know, you get, like you said, into the hustle and bustle of life. And it's nice to take your eyes off of the computer screen and just focus on what's outside and just the random acts of, I would say, random and deliberate acts of the Lord and what he shows you through nature and wildlife and gardens and just a small northwest town.
1: Give us the snapshot if you can. You're you're up there in the Pacific Northwest, Puget Sound area. For those that might be familiar, maybe some people have had an opportunity to to head up and visit the San Juan Islands. It's a spectacular part of the upper portion of the uh, west coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. But your your little hamlet there. Tell us a bit about it. Paint the picture.
3: Well, it is um, 90 feet of waterfront on the Puget Sound, and it is. Woodlands garden and just nature. I mean, we even had a bear in our yard, but you know, I mean, we we're close to town, but you get the wildlife and the nature. And we have eagles, and they eat off of a stump in our yard, and we have surprises every day. It's calming, it's peaceful. It's also wildlife. I mean, there's there's some wild things happening, too. So um, it's just fun taking in the oysters, the clams, the salmon. You know, we cook what we grow. We can get clams right off our beach. And it's just really a special, special place.
1: Your place and the experiences that you share inside the pages of at the end of the ferry strike me as as being celebratory of the the finer things in life uh, being surprised by God as you say in so many delightful ways and i for the benefit of listeners there are paragraphs where susan talks about What happens when a seagull lands on your porch? Now, for most suburbanites, Susan, we wouldn't know it if a bus (laughs) crashed through the living room, and yet you were able to stop for a moment, freeze a snapshot in time, and stop, and I would imagine just look at the wonder of the behavior. And I have to think for a moment, as you're surrounded by all of this beauty of God's creation... How can you but not stop and say, Wow God, what a wonderful, awesome God you are.
3: It truly does make you be in awe. Just to be still and pay attention and have seeing eyes and touching, I feel very, very fortunate. I highly recommend people wherever they live just get in tune to what's what's out there around them. It could be a yellow jacket that falls asleep in a foxglove, you know. Um it could be a chipmunk, you know, the tree trunk traffic. It's a joy to just pay attention to. I just think these are gifts from God to us.
1: Has this been a life-changing experience in the sense that getting away from the hustle and bustle of the noise and the traffic and being able to, again, realize that the big traffic jam is that the squirrel (laughs) had to stop to let the (laughs) snake slither by, and it took all of 10 minutes to transpire. I mean, I I realize not all of us can have kind of the on Golden Pond experience. I I remember that one scene, you probably recall if you saw the film with Henry Fonda and and Catherine Hepburn when she talks about the color are in bloom again. Such a wonderful (laughs) opportunity. Was this... Mm -hmm kind of a life-changing experience for you then
3: it was it was it was an absolute dream of mine we had vacationed up here for years and years sometimes I would cry when we had to go home because I just I loved it I just saw so much that just spoke to my soul I would say it definitely changed me in that I wasn't a high-profile job I still had to work and make a living and I still hit the wall on some things I mean even though I got to live in this small northwest town but It definitely made me a more peaceful person, definitely brought me closer to the Lord, and I treasure this experience in this world. I just feel very, very fortunate and blessed.
1: If you've just joined our conversation, Susan Walters with us tonight. We're talking about her delightful new book called At the End of the Ferry, It's an opportunity to really kind of escape from the madness and get reconnected with the simpler, finer things in life and in many ways to recognize that even as we often in day-to-day living as we're heading to and from work and stopping the kids off at uh, soccer practice, going by and picking up uh, groceries at Safeway or Costco and getting home and paying the bills and the water heater is leaking in the garage and, you know, all of that stuff that we go through, that at the end of the day, sometimes we need to make an intentional decision to disconnect from that. Step away, as Susan suggests, maybe walk out into the backyard and just contemplate for a moment the honeybee busying its work around the blossom of a tree and recognizing the interdependence that those two have with each other, that the tree does not bring forth fruit save the pollinization job done by the honeybee, and that, in a sense, the life is of, of that fruit tree is dependent upon the honeybee as much as we, oftentimes not aware of God's presence, but nevertheless must depend on his presence for very life itself, our very breath, every single day. To pause for a moment and ponder the wonder of the ability to inhale and exhale and the joy that that brings all inside the pages of this new book and we're going to talk more about life at the end of the ferry with Susan Walters as this edition of Lifeline continues
0: and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts
1: be told I could just sit and listen to that for the balance of my life and never complain. Susan Walters getting just such an experience detailed inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry. The book, by the way, is available on the web. You can check it out at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters, W-A-L-T-E-R-S, or you can order the book by calling toll-free 866-909-2665. That's 866-909-2665. As we move back to your story, Susan, I would imagine there must be times when there's this sense of God sort of, uh, through nature, vigorously shouting, I'm here, I made all this, and I love you. Do you feel like that at times?
3: (laughs) Absolutely. It's pretty incredible. And it's hard to describe, but you you know it in your heart and you would never want to give it up. And by the way, Craig, I have your constant comment ready with two lumps of sugar and some lemon.
1: Oh, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be right there.
3: (laughs) It is definitely showing me how God is omnipresent. He's there. He's there. He's in nature. It gives you a peacefulness and it allows you to be still and know that he is God. It's um, really, really a treasure.
1: When you walk out on your front porch and you're surveying and kind of taking in everything around you, do you have time, Susan, when you wonder, how can an atheist be an atheist? And I ask that huh. question because you, you look at all of this, and, and to me, in so many ways, it shouts God's glory in God's presence.
3: Absolutely. We had a butterfly bush and never had one of those before, and the the spider ate the butterfly. You see these things and you say, this just can't happen, just man didn't do this, you know? And it's really more than you can comprehend, and sometimes I don't have the words for it, but that's why I journaled it. I thought, I have to tell this story. Every day I have to write down, because every day the Lord is showing me something that is so spectacular and so miraculous and that only He could do, and... It's definitely brought me closer to Him.
1: What about the town, too? I would imagine as much as this has been kind of a life-changing experience for you to turn off the the din of the madness and allow God to have His way. Are people different, too? Do you see it affected in the lives of people around you as well? Oh,
3: absolutely. And they love to talk about nature. They love to talk about wildlife. If they saw a great blue heron nest or they saw an osprey get kicked out of a nest because the eagle wanted it you know they'll, they talk about nature they talk about wildlife it's just very common it's just very casual um the people, no, no, you're
1: not going to tell me people do things like bake cookies and rolls and bring them <laughs> piping hot over to your house are you
3: absolutely you know very giving very into each other and neighborly and they bring me bouquets of flowers they grew in their garden you know I bake um, homemade cinnamon rolls and the neighbors know about those and they know about my granola chocolate chip cookies and we um, share things or blueberries or raspberries you know when it's the season we take them to each other and it is a fun small town it's special people it's um Santa Claus rides on the fire truck through the neighborhood and throws candy at the kids you know (laughs) at Christmas time and it has a lot of uh, very, very special things.
1: must do a lot in terms of renewing your sense of hope for this country, too.
3: Yeah, it does. It definitely does. It's uh, people care about each other. You know, these people care. They get involved. They're not out in the boonies or anything like that. I mean, we're a half-hour ferryboat ride from Seattle, so we're right near the city. They know their neighbors. We get together as neighbors. We'll have um, dinners where we go from one house to the other, and... We care about what's going on in the world, and we care about what's going on in our town.
1: I kind of see this, this circle happening here where you get away from the madness, the outdoor grows bigger, and as it does so, it ends up amplifying the voice of God. Now you get closer in your relationship with Him, and then after a season, the outdoor gets smaller, and friends and people and the things in life that really matter get bigger. Do they?
3: It's definitely about values. It's definitely about loving your neighbor as yourself to treasure one another and care about one another. And then then you care about the bigger picture, too.
1: So many of the chapters, and I'll mention to listeners, this is an easy read. It's a delightful read. It's one of those reads where you pick it up over the cup of coffee or tea or two or three. Uh, you, You really fly through page by page, put it down, and then set it aside for a day or two and then come back and say, you know, I need to get away again. And you pick up the book and you start. And every chapter leads you into something I've read the book through and then in preparation for our conversation today, started to go through it again. And I was struck Mm -hmm. you talking there one point. I think it's somewhere along the month of August or or September. It's it's getting into the fall season. And you talk about a squirrel. And I thought, (laughs) what an escape for those of us in the big city where the biggest thief in the neighborhood doesn't have a rap sheet a mile high, but rather, in your case, has a, a pile of acorns a mile high, you know?
3: This squirrel actually took the tomatoes I was growing and dried them up on our rooftop you know to eat them. You know? So, you know, I I don't know. It's it's just fun seeing uh, nature do its thing. It is a mental vacation, definitely. And a an fact attorney friend from Seattle told me that it's really kind of caused him to just, you know, stop and pay more attention to what's going on, you know, around and, and but, when
1: friends and family come in from the big town Seattle to visit, are they astonished after a, a while there at your home, Susan that that flowers have names?
3: <laughs> well, they really do have names. I mean, that that came from the nursery with that name, you know. I mean, they love to come here. Even my brother and my four nephews and nieces and his wife live in Seattle, and they love to come over here. It's a different world. It is a slower world. It's a beautiful world. I get calls from North Carolina relatives and friends from Tennessee from asking to come visit and they love it. It's it's refreshing. It's very special. I feel very, very blessed.
1: I, just hearing you describe it, I, I can smell mulling spices <laughs> in the apple cider on the stove.
3: <laughs> You're right. And you, and you
1: replaced that stove, I understand. I understand that you had a little visit from the fire department. The old uh, <laughs> yeah. oil stove finally <laughs> finally gave up the ghost, so to speak.
3: You still have, you know, you, you talked about water heater leaking, things like that. You know, you still have real life things happen. And yeah, the fire department came and That old stove had to go. Your heating system up here, by the way, is really special, you know, wood burning or little potbelly stoves. One of the things men that have read my book like is the story about the egg man, that we go to an egg ranch to get our eggs, and a lot of people sell things honey, so we go to their house and get our honey, or we go, of course, farmer's markets, which you guys have down there too, but this egg man, he lives down this windy road past two ponds, and it's always something exciting in those ponds, Siberian snow geese or waterfowl or... Today I, I saw, I couldn't tell if it was a coyote or a fox, actually, but this egg man, and he's got an old refrigerator and outbuilding, and it functions as just an old refrigerator, and we just go help ourselves. And, and we went down there, and we got our eggs, and the dormer window of this old brick house opened up upstairs, and I see this man in his plaid pajamas leaning out the window, and he said, are there any eggs? Are we out of eggs? And we said, no, we got them, and he kind of laughed. I think he went back to bed, and we didn't realize it was before 6 in the morning. I had been writing all morning, early morning and night, and didn't realize the time it was. And we just have experiences like that.
1: Well, the fact that you can inter- interact with people in that kind of a fashion, you know, kind of pays tribute to to an older and simpler time in America, a time that most of us thought had kind of slipped through our fingers like the, the sands going through the hourglass. And yet, what a delight and relief to know that, that places like this still exist, and they still exist here in America. And people like Susan Walters are able to write about those experiences and share them then with all of us. And, and I think in many respects, beyond just, Susan, your reflection of life on the Puget Sound and, and the ability to hear and see God in, in so many ways maybe is not so obvious to the person in the you know, uh, traffic lines, smog-clog city streets that we have in, in the urban areas. It's been for you, I would imagine, an opportunity to almost kind of evangelize the Word that God is still alive and well and His creation all about us shouts His glory.
3: Absolutely. Definitely a simpler life and definitely values that I think that loving Him and loving our neighbor as ourself, it's the greatest command. And we're, we're really able to do that. And people see it. Katie, who wrote on the back of my book as a young woman I've been mentoring, and she, it's really, you know, changed her life. She knew the Lord, but she really wants to walk closer with Him. And she's got three little boys, and she's, she's a, actually a meteorologist in Phoenix, Arizona. And It definitely has an impact. It does. It overflows. It definitely overflows. That's my hope, that the book will bring joy to people, help them to see that even in the tough times, and there are tough times right now in the economy and people are losing their homes and things, and that it will really bring them closer to the Lord and um, help them to see what, what's really valuable.
1: And, you know, as you point out, oftentimes the, the greatness of the wonder of God's love for us is not in the castles built by man, but might be as simple as stepping out in the backyard and looking at the interaction between, uh, you know, the bee and the tree, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and just be able to witness God's love for us for Firsthand in things that we oftentimes look right past, don't we?
3: Absolutely. Just the peacefulness of mind and soul. And I, I know, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength is one of my favorite verses. And I just think... Um, To have a quiet and peaceable life is very rich, and it doesn't have to be money or riches, and it can be a pot of petunias on your little patio.
1: For all of us that would like to be able to get away and to reconnect with God, I think this, in in very simple ways, accomplishes that. The book, again, is called At the End of the Ferry. And you can get more information about ordering it by calling 866-909-2665. Again, 866-909-2665, or online, as I say, at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters. Now, many in the audience will know your husband, and I'm, and I'm fearful to let the cat out of the bag only because the phone will be ringing off the hook with reservation requests. <laughs> so uh, we sure appreciate, though, Susan, you taking some time to uh, share your story and your experiences with our listeners here tonight in Northern California, and most delightfully to, in a sense, uh, open your heart and your lives and your home and the bounty of God's created world there in the Pacific Northwest uh, inside the new book. And I just urge folks, you looking to get away, boy, here's an easy way to do it that'll get you away and get you back to God at the end of the ferry. And Susan Walters, thanks so much for the time, Susan.
3: Thank you, Craig, so much. Take All, care.
1: Always a delight. Take care now. And again, I'll remind you the book newly published by Zulon. You can get it online at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters at the end of the ferry.